Hello and welcome to the Inerrant Word Podcast. Today I talk with Dr. Stephen Wellam. Dr. Wellam is Professor of Christian Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is also the editor of the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology and theological editor of Christ Overall. He has taught at Southern Seminary since 1999. He received his MDiv and PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He has also served as senior pastor and interim pastor in South Dakota and Kentucky, as well as a conference speaker in various engagements in the U.S., Canada, and United Kingdom. He is the author of numerous essays, articles, and books. He is also the co-author with Peter Gentry of Kingdom Through Covenant, which is in its second edition, published by Crossway in 2012 and 2018, and co-author with Trent Hunter of Christ from Beginning to End. He's also the author of God the Son Incarnate, The Doctrine of the Person of Christ, published by Crossway in 2016. Today, Dr. Wellam and I discuss the doctrine of Scripture and why it is important for the Church. We discuss inspiration, authority, and of course, inerrancy. I hope the conversation is clarifying and edifying to you. Well, hello, Dr. Wellam, and welcome to the Inerrant Word podcast. Well, Clay, great to be with you and uh, looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Well, first, I just want to ask maybe just a quick testimony, a little bit of your uh, history with the Bible. Um, When did you first learn to trust the Bible, and um, maybe where did you learn to grow in your knowledge of Scripture and, and so on? Yeah, sure. I mean, so really goes back to my my Christian testimony, where uh, I was raised in in a Christian home. So I had the supreme privilege of, from, you know, I, I don't remember, right? I mean, right from earliest age, uh, my parents reading the scripture, uh, teaching us, as of course I grew and and uh, and and developed and aged and so on, and also taking us to church, so that I had at home. The teaching from God's word, the faithful uh, preaching of God's word um, on a regular basis, the opening up, the teaching expositionally, working through book after book. Uh, and so I had that even as a young child. Uh, you know, then I had Sunday school, youth groups, all that kind of thing, teaching that. So I knew a lot of uh, a lot of the content of the Bible, the basic uh, teaching of scripture and so on. But of course, that doesn't um, just because you are raised in a in a Christian home doesn't mean that uh, you come to believe everything. You have to do that for yourself. And so I had been taught from my parents, my local church, that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's trustworthy uh, and true. And uh, that really was driven home to me at my conversion, where uh, from the preaching of God's Word, uh, the Lord opened my heart to to say, "I'm a sinner. I need." a savior, and that savior is the Jesus of the Bible. I don't have a, any other Jesus than him who comes to, to me from, from the word of God. And so I repented and believed in the Lord Jesus. And automatically, uh, uh, I started you know, personally then reading scripture, studying it, uh, daily devotions, um, and then pretty early on, a uh, real desire to to know scripture and to be a teacher and to be called to ministry and so on. So all of that was tied to not only my upbringing, but uniquely my conversion. But let me, let me tell you of a time when I was actually, you know, I've been to seminary, I've done master's program, doctorate program. So studied a lot on the scripture, wrote an entire dissertation on the, uh, the doctrine of scripture, but uh, was really driven home to me at one time when I was pastoring so as I was finishing my my studies in the 90s, uh, and I was pastoring in South Dakota, uh, I had an experience that that uh, really solidified and just sort of confirmed and and just uh, reminded me again of the truthfulness and the power of God's word. Is that I was counseling, and by the bedside of a of a woman in my church who was uh, dying of cancer, and. Um, just going to her and reading scripture, reading uh, you know the promises of God and reading the truth of the gospel that came uh, from reading the scripture and and uh, simply uh, you know how that reading of scripture was powerful that it was effective that you could see God taking His word and uh, encouraging this one who was was dying of cancer and 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 giving her 
um, you know, life and strength and, and, uh, perseverance to be able to press on in that. And so that reminded me, even as I had come to believe scripture and studied scripture and wrote about scripture and so on, just confirming that, you know, this really is this, this, this Bible is the word of God. It is powerful. It is true that uh, the best thing that you can do is read it and get others to read it. And God takes his word, the spirit of God takes his word and drives it home to people's lives. And so that was a confirming, it wasn't the first time I had believed in scripture, but it was a confirming uh, experience that God's word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And actually uh, is that which gives life and strength and help uh, to people. And then throughout, you know, my ministries over the years to see even in the preaching of God's word, people brought from spiritual darkness uh, not being Christians and brought spiritual life. And that comes through the preaching of the word of God. And so the word of God is powerful. It is true. It's authoritative. And all of that has been drilled into my life uh, from the earliest age, my conversion and over and over again, uh, seeing in practice how God's word actually is effective and authoritative. Well, thank you for that little testimony. Um, I think it gives, gives me a good idea in the audience just of who, uh, how scripture has shaped you and um, how uh, just the scripture has touched your life. For someone who doesn't understand what inspiration is, um, how would you explain what inspiration, what the inspiration of scripture is and why it's important? Yeah, I mean, the inspiration of scripture, that, that term uh, is can be misleading to people, right? Because uh, when we talk about the inspiration of scripture, we're using it in a very specific sense or what we call uh, a technical sense, right? So any any discipline has a whole vocabulary and, and, and technical vocabulary. If you study engineering, then you have all kinds of mathematical terms and science terms and so on. So when we speak about the inspiration of scripture, we have to distinguish it from sort of a popular understanding of when we use the term inspiration or inspiring we often uh, when we speak of you know watching a sport event and we say oh that was that was inspirational or we particularly with a play or music or a book or some kind of art form we say oh that that music just moved me it was inspirational or that person was inspiring and then they they challenged me to live differently and so on right so we often use the term inspiration or inspiring in the sense of a kind of effect that it has on me, something subjective uh, so that it moves me to uh, greater achievement or greater thought or greater action and so on. Uh, now, scripture certainly does that for us, but when we speak about the inspiration of scripture, we're speaking about uh, something not subjective, but objective. And what we mean by that is God himself, right? The triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit is a speaking God. He, um, within himself, there are relations of communion, love, fellowship. It's always gone on from all eternity. Yet uh, in God's plan, he has brought the universe into existence. Uh, he spoke that universe. He spoke and it came into being. So he's a speaking God. And inspiration is tied to the fact that the God who is there, the God who is the triune God speaks. He speaks and he speaks and communicates to us uh, in an objective way, right? Just as he created the universe objectively, he speaks through words, he speaks through prophets, apostles, and those who write scripture. So in his sovereign action, in his, and then we would define inspiration as an extraordinary work of God. We call it extraordinary because it's it's a miraculous work of God. It's a supernatural work of God. God works ordinarily in the universe as he sustains it and keeps it going. We call that divine providence. But in providence, there's also extraordinary work. And inspiration is the extraordinary work of God, the triune God, particularly in and through the person of the Holy Spirit, right? So all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in the speaking to us of his word, uh, but uniquely the spirit. So the extraordinary action of the triune God through the Holy Spirit upon the human authors of scripture. So we have both God speaking in and through 
the authors, right? So the Bible is a human book in terms of its authorship, right? So you have Moses writes the first five books and and uh, various authors uh, write the Psalms and Isaiah and, and Matthew, Mark and Luke and so on. But inspiration isn't just their human writings. It's the sovereign, extraordinary work of the Spirit of God upon those authors so that their writings, their books, are precisely what God intends to communicate to us. So that's why inspiration means that Scripture is the Word of God. Now, it's also a human word, but it's God by speaking to us in and through those authors so that what they write is what God intends to write in order to communicate to us uh, his communication, his truth to us. And that is why when we speak about the inspiration of Scripture, Scripture is not like any ordinary book. Uh, it is ordinary in the sense that it is a human author, but it's the divine author uh, who speaks in and through those authors so that what they write is what he wants communicated, and it's completely trustworthy, authoritative, and true. So inspiration is that objective work, that sovereign work, that supernatural work. So we want to, when we speak of the inspiration of scripture, we don't want to say it's the book that moves me subjectively. That may be true, but the inspiration is really speaking about the nature of scripture as a God-breathed book, right? God spoke through those authors so that what they write is precisely what God wants us to know. It's revelation to us so that it is then trustworthy and true because it's ultimately his word. And we then speak of this in terms of the Bible. The Bible and the word is becomes very important. The Bible is the word of God. Uh, not that it's not a human word, but the Bible referring to those human texts are the very word of God, what God wants communicated through those human authors. That's what we mean by the inspiration of scripture. Could you give our listeners a... Um maybe a, the difference between authority and inspiration, because uh, that can confuse some people uh, in terms of what authority means. Yeah, well, authority, I mean, is, is ultimately tied to the one who has the right uh, to speak and to have authority and to command obedience. And so we speak of authority. So uh, God is the one who has all authority. What do we mean by that? Well, he is our creator. He is our Lord. He is the one who is the standard of right and wrong. He has the right uh, as well as the ability, the might to be able to to command things, to teach us things. He is the all-knowing one. So he has all authority. And the God then of who has all authority then speaks through these human authors so that what they write is authoritative. Uh, it carries weight, right? We are to obey it. We are to receive it. We are to hear it. Uh, we are to uh, put it into practice uh, because what they write is God's word. So authority speaks of the God who has all knowledge and all authority to speak to us. Now, inspiration then is the actual work of God, the sovereign work of God through the spirit that brings that text to be God's word so that the Word of God is authoritative. Scripture is authoritative precisely because it is God's word. Well, what do we mean by it being God's word? Well, we mean that in terms of inspiration, right? So the inspiration is the very means by which we have the scripture to be authoritative, right? So authoritative speaks of God who has all authority. He has the right to command, the right to teach, the right to reveal truths to us. And inspiration is the very means by which that human book, those human authors speak the very words of God and thus have authority. The Bible's authoritative because it is God's word. And this, of course, um, I think you asked before and I didn't fully answer was why this is important, right? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's ultimately important because we need uh, God to speak to us, right? Apart from uh, the God who is there, who knows all things, and who makes himself known to us, we would really not have uh, a firm ground and objective ground for truth. We would look at the world and we would say, well, um, we would try to figure it out, or we would try to figure out who we are, who God is. We need God to reveal himself. We need a standard of truth. We need an authoritative base for our lives. And apart from scripture being God's word, we are left simply to 
finite human opinions. We have, a, you know, we speak about human authorities, uh, but human authorities, if it's not grounded in an absolute authority or an objective authority such as God, then we are left to some kind of a relative authority. And of course, that's where our society is at, where we have the notion of relative truth, where there's no ultimate standard, there is no ultimate perspective. Uh, scripture, as God's word, the God who has all authority, uh, gives us the very ground and basis to know what is true and right and good and beautiful. And apart from that, we really do not have a strong objective ground for truth. Yeah, I mean, very directly. And and I'm glad you mentioned Francis Schaeffer. And yes, you're exactly right, that that phrase, the God who is there. And, and also another book that uh, he wrote called He is There and He is Not Silent, right? And that's that book. Up there is is both those ideas uh, together are so so important uh, because it gives you the very basis for truth, namely that God is there, who's the source and standard of truth, but He then has made Himself known to us, right? So Francis Schaeffer's works are very very important. He, um, uh, if your listeners, you know, may know or they may not know, I mean, he he died in 1984, so that's you know a lot of people long before they were ever born. Uh, and so on. And I would encourage people to go back and and he's got uh, five volumes that uh, Crossway put out on his his work, his life work. And you can hear even on the um, YouTube, there's some uh, video, his How Should We Then Live series and so on. He's certainly worth listening to. But Schaefer was very strong on the Lordship of Christ. And of course, he tied that directly to scripture because uh, we come to know who Jesus is from the word of God. We don't know Jesus uh, in terms of his life, death, resurrection, apart from scripture. Scripture is the authoritative interpretation and explanation of who Jesus is. Uh, and so uh, then when you even look at how Jesus is presented uh, in, in, the, in the gospels, how Jesus thought of the Old Testament, right? The New Testament had not been, yet been written, but uh, you think of in Matthew uh, four, four, where Jesus's whole life uh, as the son of God, the one who took on our humanity in order to redeem us, his whole life was built on the authority of scripture. He lived by the scripture. Uh, so you have in Matthew four, four, he says, you know, to, in his temptation with Satan, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And of course he's quoting uh, the Pentateuch or the Old Testament, the Mosaic writings, and he's building there is that we need to follow the word of God, right? Or you can't add to scripture, you can't subtract. Or in John 10, he says, scripture cannot be broken, right? So Jesus, the Lord, is the one who sees that all of scripture is about him, that he, uh, that scripture is authoritative, it's true. He treated every detail of the Old Testament as accurate. He goes back to Genesis 2 and grounds marriage. He speaks of, of, of Noah. He speaks of, um, you know, Old Testament events. He quotes from Scripture. Scripture says. He says that all of the Scripture speaks of him, uh, the law, the Psalms, the writings. Uh, he will say, I have not come to abolish uh, the Word of God in, in, in terms of Matthew 5, 17 through 19, I've come to fulfill it, but he says not one jot or tittle, which is the smallest part of the uh, the Hebrew alphabet. He says not one of that's going to disappear, right? God's word is true, is reliable. Uh, the Old Testament, he may have come and brought it to its fulfillment. He, We no longer go to temples and, and, uh, and Levitical priests, right? All of that pointed us to Christ, yet he treats the Old Testament as authoritative and true. So if Christ is our Lord, then we must receive his word as he received it. And to even receive him as Lord, we need the scriptures to tell us who he is and what he has done. So you can't have Jesus without his word. You can't know the gospel apart from scripture. We can't understand uh, even who he is apart from the entire uh, scripture and the revelation that is authoritative and true. And we can't say that we are followers of Jesus and then dismiss the word that he says that cannot be broken and his life then is built upon, right? So the Lordship of Christ is very, very crucial. We have people today, unfortunately, in our churches 
uh, even pastors who will say, well, you know, really don't need the Bible. All you need is Jesus and his resurrection and so on. But you can't have Jesus and his resurrection without the Old Testament, without the New Testament, without the scriptures. Jesus lived by the word of God, and he then prepared his disciples and apostles to write the New Testament. The New Testament is all about him. It's the new covenant documentation. So as Francis Schaeffer would have said, in terms of affirming the Lordship of Christ, that goes hand in hand with an authoritative Bible, a trustworthy Bible. And when we speak of trustworthy Bible, we're speaking about an inerrant Bible, a Bible that will not lead us astray. The Bible that in its claims and its statements and so on is teaching us the truth. And of course, it requires proper interpretation and understanding. Yet when scripture speaks about something, whether it's history, whether it's a, the gospel matter, a theological matter, um, a, you know, a life matter, right? It speaks truly to us because it is the inspired word of God. And that was Jesus's understanding of scripture. And that must also be our understanding as well. Very good. And you mentioned the covenants uh, a little bit ago. Um, and I know the covenants has been sort of your life work um, in terms of progressive covenantalism, which we won't get into today. But I wanted to bring up your book, Christ from Beginning to End with Trent Hunter, um, which was profoundly helpful in helping me understand the Old Testament. Um, we used it at our church, actually, at Gospel City Church um, for our core scripture classes. I had a pastor at our church. Um, I texted him to ask him what would be a question you'd ask Dr. Wellam. And he said, just encourage him because we've had 500 people go through this class and learn more about the Bible and love Christ more because of you and Trent Hunter's book. Um, so I wanted to encourage you that way. Well, that's, I mean, I'm very encouraged by that. It's always, I, you know, I never hear always these reports and I never know uh, exactly, you know, who's buying it and who's reading it. And so Clay, thanks. Uh, that That's really encouraging. You spend time writing these things and uh, you, you certainly want to see them benefit the church. So that's really good news. So in terms of the covenants, um, how do the covenants enhance our trust in the scriptures? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the areas of, of you know, we, we not only affirm from scripture that it's the inspired word of God, it's authoritative and true. But um, and we speak of this often in terms of the Bible's claim for itself. Right? What does the Bible say about itself? Uh, if you work from Genesis to Revelation, there's there's a there's a, a claim that comes through throughout a pervasive claim. This is the word of God through these human authors that it is reliable and true and so on. So that's a claim, right? And and we also then try to give evidence uh, for that claim, right? And so this is the whole area of apologetics. Well, why ought I to believe uh, that Scripture truly is the Word of God? It says it is, but how can I ultimately? Uh, have reasons for that, right? And one of them, I mean, there's many reasons that we could give, historical reasons and it's it's uh, demonstration and archaeology and and all these areas. but but one of the um the the sort of what we say internal or um, one of its own claims is that this is the Word of God written over, you know, a long period of time. you know often say people say sixteen hundred years, depending on when you're dating the various books, uh, 40 different authors in our English Bibles, we have 66 books. And 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 that's not always counted the same in, in terms of uh, the Old Testament, where in, in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, what we have is first and second Samuel would have been just one book and, and so on. But in our English Bible, 66 books, 40 different authors over 15, 1600 years. But what we find is that that there is a, a consistent message that comes from Genesis to Revelation. And it's really the covenants that really show that uh, as you work through uh, creation uh, in terms of God's creation of the world and Adam and his role there and his covenant relationship with God, uh, the fall into sin the promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15, that God will send a seed of the woman and how that seed promise gets unfolded through the Noahic covenant and Noah and his family, how it gets unpacked through Abraham and his offspring that shows up in Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel, how the promises to Abraham are realized in first the nation of Israel and through them will come the promised seed, and then ultimately beyond that, uh, and how it works through the Davidic covenant and ultimately the new covenant. 
the covenantal structure of the Bible not only connects the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but it unfolds one glorious plan of redemption. And that is not something that uh, over 40 different authors and over 1,500 years do you have that kind of unity of plan. We can't write even ourselves probably books that uh, that are even consistent over one person's lifetime, let alone add you know, all these years and all these different authors and different backgrounds and so on. So the covenants are a way of showing how the one plan of God is unified, how it leads us in promise after promise, uh, in, in all kinds of patterns and structures that the storyline of the Bible through those covenants leads us to Christ that Christ isn't some add-on as he's that which the Old Testament foretold and anticipated and looked forward to. He is that which brings it to fulfillment. We open, um, you know, Matthew's gospel, and, and a lot of us are shocked with, well, what on earth is this genealogy doing here? Uh, so we read the very first verse that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, but we realize that's connecting us back to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. A David, the Davidic king, the Davidic covenant, that the covenants are a beautiful way where God's one plan unfolds across redemptive history, and it shows the continuity of that plan, the unity of that plan, and that underscores the truthfulness of that plan, because Scripture claims not only to be the Word of God, but it claims to be a unified revelation. It claims to lead us to Christ. It claims that uh, the law and the prophets and the Psalms all lead us to him. And that's precisely what it does. And you see that beautifully through uh, God's unfolding revelation through the covenants. And so covenants do many, many things in Scripture. But that's one way that it ties to this whole question of scriptural authority, uh, giving us reasons and evidence for the very claims of Scripture that this is the word of God and the Bible actually makes good on those claims by reading the text and you say, ah, this Bible fits together. These promises that were given centered in Christ now actually come to pass. And, and you can then say, this truly is the word of God. And that's really one of the greatest testimonies of scripture is having people read it to see its unity, to see how it's put together, to see how it leads us to Christ. Uh, that's one of the great evidences for the very truthfulness of scripture. Now, in terms of the authority of scripture, I want to go back to that. Um, well, how you mentioned it a few times in terms of Christ's words about the Old Testament, but I just wanted to uh, ask the question more directly. How do we see the authority of scripture articulated in scripture itself? Yeah, I mean, we would we would have to work through. It's not just one or two texts here. So we're we're familiar with if if anyone's familiar with the doctrine of scripture and what scripture says about itself, we usually turn to two classic uh, texts, and those texts are Second Timothy three, uh, fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen, but particularly verse sixteen. All scripture is God breathed; it's useful for doctrine, for correction, and 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 so on. So that's a very very important passage that speaks about what scripture is scripture is this this term scripture refers to the old testament it refers to a certain body of literature that is actually described as the breathed out word of god that speaks of inspiration that's where we get the word inspiration from you know, inspiration really means more in terms of um, uh, exhaling than inhaling type of thing or god's breathed out in terms of giving a scripture so we're familiar with that text we're also familiar with Second Peter one twenty one that prophets don't speak on their own, but they speak uh, by the revelation of God as God carries them along. And those two texts together really give us our doctrine of Scripture, give us the inspiration of Scripture, that the human authors of Scripture don't write on their own. They speak by revelation, that they are carried along. Sometimes we use the term superintended, which is a, speaks of God's sovereign, extraordinary action in them, so that what they write the text they write, 2 Timothy 3, 16, is a God-breathed text. So those are two classic uh, uh, verses and places that give us the doctrine of Scripture, but it's not just limited to that. People will say, well, you know, that's, is that the only place where Scripture uh, speaks of its authority and so on? And the answer is no. I mean, uh, so if we actually read the storyline of the Bible, from the very, very beginning, we are confronted with the God who speaks. 
the God who speaks the universe into existence, the God who comes and speaks to Adam, right? So we're always um, uh, creation, a revelation. Our very existence is by the very spoken word of God. As we then work through the Old Testament, particularly as we get to the uh, the giving of the covenants, the giving of the covenants always involves uh, written documentation. So in terms of Exodus and so on, we see that uh, even the Ten Commandments are written by the very finger of God. Um, we have that affirmation. We have, uh, you know, Moses saying in Deuteronomy five that you hear, you know, the word of God. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. This is ultimately authoritative. Uh, the prophets who speak speak. I mean, the test for the prophets is that they speak exactly what comes true, which is a pretty high test. Um, and 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 what, of course, they write must be also tied to to that as well. And then as the later prophets will say, thus says the Lord, right? The Lord has given me this revelation. The Lord has spoken and, and, and so on. And then the new Testament comes along and says, scripture says, uh, the Lord says you have in say, um, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, where the author is quoting, uh, Jeremiah, right? Where God is giving a revelation of the new covenant. And he says, the Holy spirit says, Right, so that you have the very text seen as that which is God given. These kind of passages run right through the the entire Bible. So, from the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, that Moses gives to us, everything in that Torah is that this is not just Moses' words. This is the word of God. The Lord Jesus, as I said before in Matthew four four, quotes from Deuteronomy and says, you shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's quoting Moses' words, but he treats them as uh, not just Moses' words, but the word of God. God says unto you, God speaks, thus says the Lord, and the New Testament then, Jesus and the New Testament apostles look back on the Old Testament, and they will say repeatedly, um, uh, you know, God's word said, Moses said, the law said, um, uh, the writings and the prophets, uh, but they treat it as the word of God and authoritative. So that's the kind of pervasive data that runs through the entire Bible. The two texts, as I said, that I began with are, are probably the most significant. Second Timothy uh, 3.16 and and Second Peter 1.21 are just simply building on the whole teaching of the Bible, and they confirm that uh, the scripture is that God-breathed word that comes from human apostles and uh, prophets. Very good. Um, I also wanted to bring up, uh, we've been talking about the authority and the inerrancy of scripture, and one of the articulations of that uh, has been the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Now, for listeners who don't know, um, we talked about that in a previous podcast with Derek Brown, but uh, the Chicago Statement uh, just a brief overview, uh, was crafted in 1978 by a team of 300, uh, over 300 evangelical scholars. And um, it just gives a, a list of articles um, listing uh, why the Bible is uh, authoritative, inerrant, inspired, and what that looks like and what it doesn't look like. Um, so, Dr. Wellam, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on the Chicago Statement in terms of how it articulates uh, scriptures and inspiration and authority. Yeah, I mean the Chicago Statement, as you say, was was carefully put together. Uh, it was part of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy that began. Francis Schaeffer, we mentioned him before. Others, R.C. Sproul, James Montgomery Boyce. I mean, and many many others were instrumental in the the mid twentieth century of uh, defending the authority of scripture, the inspiration and the inerrancy of scripture. And so the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy met on a number of occasions and, uh, you know, whole books came out of that defending scripture. And you have the Chicago Statement on inerrancy. You also have the Chicago Statement on hermeneutics and other statements as well. And then there was a whole set of uh, literature that, that came out of that. So that Chicago Statement on on inerrancy, you talked with um, – Derek about that, right? I mean, overall, it's a it's a very good statement uh, here at Southern Seminary. Uh, we affirm it, and it's one of our documents. Um, my work with Christ overall, our website and podcast, and that we that's one of our documents that our board uh, subscribes to. So, so overall, it's a very fine statement. No statement, of course, is is perfect, 
uh, so that uh, it covers the basic points of inspiration, uh, inerrancy, original autographs. It speaks of a little bit on hermeneutics. That's a whole nother statement, but reading uh, in terms of the grammar, the, 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 his, the historical setting of the, of the books, um, its literary forms, and so on. I mean, one area probably that uh, since the 70s has received a bit more care, uh, just as on on some of the some of the hermeneutical issues, some of the literary issues, some of the language issues, how language works. Uh, some people think that it's giving us uh, a view of truth that is what's called a referential view of truth, and it doesn't do justice to poetry and narratives and apocalyptic and so on. So those are areas um, when I was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Kevin Van Hooser was very helpful. Uh, and he's a foremost evangelical theologian who's worked on the doctrine of scripture. Uh, he's part of the four views book or, or is it five views? I think it's five, five views, views book yeah. on on inerrancy where his chapter there is, is very helpful on the literary nature of scripture and the kind of truth claims that are tied to the kind of literature. But when all is said and done, I still think the Chicago statement is still very helpful, very reliable. Um, it, it's You can always improve uh, statements, but in the end, I think it captures the basic thrust that scripture is God's word. It is the inspired word of God, that it is reliable in all that it affirms. That's crucial, right? So we want to make sure that we're interpreting scripture correctly. What is it actually affirming? What kind of truth statements is it claiming? Uh, so that when we tie that to inerrancy, some people distinguish infallibility uh, from inerrancy. So infallibility is sort of a broader concept that scripture will not fail. And of course, that's crucial. Uh, inerrancy was a term that came a little bit later on to, to shore up with precision what we mean that scripture cannot fail because a lot of people were beginning to say, well, scripture cannot fail in only certain areas such as, uh, you know, faith and practice or doctrine and what we, how we ought to live, but maybe not history and science and so on. And inerrancy came along to say, no, no, no. If scripture is affirming something related to history or science, even though it's not a textbook on many scientific things, uh, it still is reliable and true. So the Chicago statement, uh, bottom line, I think is still a very fine statement. It was put together by excellent scholars that we're very much indebted to. Uh, we could be tweaked a bit here and there. I think Derek probably would have talked about that. His dissertation uh, focused on some of those areas. But, uh, but overall, I mean, it's still a very helpful statement, a good place to start. And uh, if there needs to be a few tweaking, it's not that we have to start from ground zero. It's it's a good place to take people back to. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds because uh, we're talking to a lay audience, but I want to make sure that we hit on this important topic. I'm reading through uh, Thomas Schreiner's um, uh, The King and His Beauty, and one of the things he talks about is uh, some people to divorce uh, history and theology when they're reading scripture. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, I didn't give you this question, so if you don't feel up to answering this, this is totally fine, but I wanted to see what your thoughts were on on that as well, um, because that could be a crucial issue in terms of understanding and trusting the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, uh, so what what's usually going on there is, oh, the Bible, this is sort of what I alluded to with, well, the Bible will not fail. It's infallible. It's authoritative in its in a very limited domain. What is that domain? Well, that's what we should believe, our faith, uh, how we ought to live, right? Practice. But when it touches matters of ancient history or first century history, uh, it could make mistakes there, but it's still reliable in terms of giving us doctrine and our theology and, and how we ought to live. So did it really matter uh, whether the exodus occurred uh, does did it really matter whether jericho was an actual historic city or could that just be um you know a legendary tale that is sort of cast in historical uh you know er, you know historical notions type of thing but it really didn't happen right uh doesn't really matter as long as the big truths of scripture jesus and his resurrection are true i mean you have again uh, pastors who will be saying this very well-known pastors who will say, well, it doesn't matter if the Bible makes mistakes in those historical matters, as long as, you know, the resurrection is true. And as long as, you know, the basic new Testament is true and so on. The, the problem with that, and I think what 
Tom Schreiner was probably referring to in his book is you, you cannot separate, you cannot divorce what's going on in history from theology, right? Uh, Christianity and the God of the Bible acts in history. So this is different than other religions, right? Some religions are simply life systems, Confucianism and Buddhism and so on. It doesn't matter whether anything happened in history. But what we have is we have God who not only creates the world, the stage of human history, but acts in history. His redemptive acts take place in historical events. And, and, and the theology of who God is and even our salvation is dependent upon those historical events happening. So you think particularly in terms of the Gospels, right? Uh, the virgin birth, the virgin conception, you say, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, may maybe that's just legendary or something like that. That didn't happen. We could still have Jesus. Well, you can't, right? I mean, you, you can't have the Jesus of the Bible. You can't have who he is, the one who is the word made flesh apart from the virgin conception. You can't have him uh, doing not doing his miracles or not doing the things in history or not rising from the dead. Uh, who Jesus is, what the gospel is, our theology is dependent upon those events being true, right? In the same way with historical events in the Old Testament, the Exodus, uh, the Exodus, uh, the, the Bible says happened, right? And if it didn't happen, then you don't have the same kind of redemption that God has achieved in that Exodus if it didn't happen in history, right? These historical events are part of God's redemptive plan. They are his mighty acts. We need a word revelation to make sense of those acts, but those acts must happen. Now, we have to make sure that uh, the, the, the Bible that we read is claiming that those events occurred, right? Uh, so there's where they have the literary nature, right? So when you read apocalyptic literature and has all kinds of symbolism, you have to be careful of literalizing it where, you know, you have a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. There's actual a sword there, right? It's apocalyptic language. It's symbolic language. But in the Old Testament, when we have narratives, we have descriptions of historical events that's tied to history. Those are saying that they actually happened. So our theology is dependent upon those various events being true. If they are not true, the Bible then is making a mistake in that area, and it affects then whether uh, our theology then is accurate, whether we can trust the Bible on those matters. So you cannot separate the Bible's claims of, of God acting in history and those events occurring uh, as historical from the theological statements. They go all together. The very nature of Christianity and the very nature of the gospel are dependent upon history and theology being tied together. Yeah, it, it's it's trying to give, you know, within the confines of a of a volume in that. It, it, so there's other topics I'm having to cover in that first volume, but but it's trying to give a fairly thorough uh, treatment of the doctrine of scripture. And, uh, and the first thing is that it's, it's, I've tried to connect, which I think you, you must is, is, uh, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of scripture go hand in hand. So the kind of scripture that we have is due to the kind of God that's there. The kind of God that's there gives us an authoritative and true scripture so that in theology, right? Doctrines are not independent of one another. They're interrelated to one another. So that we cannot properly talk about what scripture is apart from the God of scripture and the God of scripture demands uh, and gives us a revelation that is reliable and true, right? So that's one area that the systematic, uh, well, in my systematic, I'm trying to link together the doctrines of God and scripture. You have to make a decision of what you talk about first. Should you, should you first talk about God and then scripture or scripture and then God? Right. Uh, and, and so that's it's they both go together, but you have to then obviously uh, decide what you're going to speak about first. So I do speak about revelation and scripture first. And what I try to go through there is is then speak of the Bible's own claims for itself, set it over against other views of scripture that we see uh, in our day, define what we mean by inspiration, uh, inerrancy, the canon of scripture. How do we know that? Uh, certain books are truly the word of God and how the church has properly recognized those books. I discuss things such as the why the scripture is enough or what we call the sufficiency of scripture, uh, how the scripture is clear in our in our interpretation. So that's very crucial that if it's authoritative, we must be able to, by the spirit of God, be able to interpret it rightly uh, and, and so on. So those are all issues that are laid out in terms of the doctrine of scripture, setting it in relation to 
God's revelation in creation, or what we call natural revelation, with then it as special revelation. So that's sort of a, a bit of a taste of what I discuss and try to um, you know lay out in terms of a sort of a full-orbed view of Scripture, giving the church confidence that this is indeed the Word of God. It's our foundation, that it's reliable and true, and we need to not only affirm that, but we need to believe that and live in light of it. Very good. And I uh, know this book can be pre-ordered now. Um, and it's uh, the publisher is Broadman and Holdman. Um, now, Dr. Wellam, uh, what books or who, uh, in terms of people, would you recommend that uh, lay people read in terms of understanding the doctrine of Scripture more? Um, people that have helped you over the years or maybe books that would give a refresher on what, how to trust scripture. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's many, many books written over the years and many good authors and, and, and so on. But, you know, I, if I were to think of some, some top ones, right. So start with something that's fairly short, uh, that gives a nice summary of, of the doctrine of scripture. I would start with, uh, Mark Thompson, Mark Thompson's new book that is part of crossway series on short studies in systematic theology uh it's a series i i wrote as well in that series on the person of christ but uh, mark has written on the doctrine of scripture so it's called the doctrine of scripture and introduction and it's it's um maybe 150 pages or so uh it, it's it's not long but it's it's really a, a excellent summary uh so it's a great place to begin and it's not going to take one long time to read. It's it's readable. Mark has done a lot of work on the doctrine of scripture. He's an Australian uh, who's written a lot on the clarity of scripture um, and, 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 and sufficiency of scripture. And so this is an excellent introduction. I also like um, of, of recent years, right? So I, I'm thinking of some recent books, uh, Guy uh, Waters, Guy Waters. And he's got a book called From... Um, uh, fr from the mouth of the Lord, I think that's it. From uh, from the mouth of the Lord, He has spoken, um, and it's nice little summary of uh, the doctrine of Scripture. It's not that long. Comes out of Christian Focus Publishers, so it's it's a it's a good work. Uh, Matthew Barrett, one of our former students here at Southern, um, colleague uh, through Midwestern Seminary, uh, he wrote a book, part of the Sola series in the Reformation back in two thousand fifteen sixteen or so, called. Um, uh, God's word alone. And I think it's a great little treatment of it's set in the context of the Reformation and Roman Catholic debates, but it's a good summary of, <clears throat> of the doctrine of scripture. So I'd recommend that. You also have a whole collection of essays from uh, Westminster Theological Seminary called Thy Word is Still Truth. And that's another excellent volume. We could actually have quite a few of those uh, volumes that you said. So um, I would encourage listeners to go out and uh, get those in the library or purchase those. Um, I'll link those in the show notes as well so people can find those. Uh, lastly, if you're thinking, yeah, well, let me just say if you're thinking of older works, um, Herman Bavink and his Reformed Dogmatics. So there's sections in there. Those are excellent books too. Yeah, Herman Bavink is very good as well. Um, he does a lot. Uh, he did a really good lay uh, systematic theology. Um, he has a four volume systematic theology. Um, yes, very good theologian from history. Um, lastly, Dr. Wellam, I wanted to say, um, one, one of the questions I have is what else w about scripture should we mention that hasn't already been brought up? Well, there's a lot of areas with doctrine of scripture, right? I mean, we've talked more in terms of inspiration, some areas of authority. I mean, you have to talk about in our day, a lot of people raise challenges regarding well, how do you know which books are the inspired word of God? So canon issues, what books uh, belong in scripture in, in terms of the canon of scripture, that's a very important issue of, of discussion, enters into Roman Catholic d d debate over the Apocrypha, which they include uh, as part of scripture. So that that's a that's a really important discussion. Uh, in, in today's uh, world, Bart Ehrman and people like that are always raising the issues of canon and, and how we have scripture and so on. So that's one issue. And I think as we move from inspiration, inerrancy, and so on, I mean, we have to then flesh out, well, uh, how scripture is authoritative, but uh, in what areas? That's the areas of sufficiency. It, it's not a textbook on say nuclear physics, but, but how does it address 
all issues, yet also specifically related to um, our salvation and the gospel and so on. And, and there's a lot of issues today. Uh, you'll often hear people say, uh, that's just your interpretation. You can make the Bible say anything you want. Uh, so issues of hermeneutics are very important, right? So we it's not enough just to say that we have the inspired word of God and the inerrant word of God. We also have to read the word of God. We also have to, it's only authoritative, right? If we can understand it uh, and know how it applies to our lives. So those are all issues that come out in the doctrine of scripture. I'm sure probably in future uh, podcasts, you can begin to look at each of those areas. All of those areas are very much essential. Um, also encourage you to think in the areas of two of, of how we got our Bible. We have our present English Bibles. Of course, it comes from the Hebrew and in the Old Testament, there's a bit of Aramaic and the Greek. So all of the, the people don't often understand how we have our present Bibles. And uh, so that's another crucial matter that's tied to uh, authority, reliability, trustworthiness, inerrancy, and and other matters. Yes, there's a lot that I would love to to cover, and I will be covering in the the weeks and months and years to come. Uh, God willing. maybe an agenda for the future here, so you can yes. <laughs> do future podcasts. <laughs> yes, uh, Doctor Wellam is a part of, a, unofficial board member of of uh, the Errant Word. So I <laughs> yes. Uh, we've got, we've got, we got 10 years, uh, projects ahead of you. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Dr. Wellam, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And, uh, uh, if you'd like just one more word on what the, uh, to the church about scripture, um, you've spoken a lot already on just the trustworthiness of scripture, but if you, if there's one word you can give to, uh, the church, um, to lay people out there who are, uh, wrestling with this issue, what would it be? Well, the word the word would be apart from God's word, we have nothing to stand on. Uh, we need uh, we need a reliable, trustworthy word. This is the issue of our day. The issue of our day is um, by whose authority are you living? Everyone has an authority base. Everyone grounds their life in something. Um, and and do we ground it in the word of God, the God who is there and the God who has spoken, or do we ground it in? some kind of human authority, ourselves, our experiences, and so on. Uh, if we do, it'll be quicksand. Uh, we will not be standing on a firm rock. But if we ground our lives upon what God has spoken and he's given to us in a reliable way, then we have a sure foundation. Uh, with that sure foundation, though, we must not only read it, but we must believe it and apply it. And that's really one of the areas of great weakness in our churches. We have people that will affirm the authority of Scripture, yet they know little of it. They know little of its content. They know little of its teaching. They do spend no time reading it. Even our churches, we're not preaching it, and we're not actually obeying it, right? So we're believing it and obeying it. So we need people who are both hearers of the Word and doers of the Word. So that's what I would say is we need to ground our lives for the life and health of the church. It has to be grounded in the word of God. Very good. That's a good word to end on. Um, Dr. Wellam, thank you for joining me today and go and read the word. Mm -hmm.